I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upsound, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upsound it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today joining me is Daniel Harrigus, Senior Editor of Strong Towns. So we haven't had you he- on here in a couple of weeks, probably a couple of months now, Daniel. So I'm really glad to have you back. Welcome. Thanks, Abby. So I'm really excited because this is the article that we are covering is an article written by you. <laughs> towns. And it's very timely because I've actually been working with Monty Anderson, who's a small scale developer out of Dallas, Texas all week. And so very timely and very much on my mind. This article is entitled, Where Did All the Small Developers Go? So in this article, you write about how the many places that we as urbanists consider to be the most enduring and timeless and wonderful, you know, from small towns to large cities, were the result of an incremental development approach. And these places are not actually the result of careful planning, like a lot of people might think, but really a highly decentralized process with ad hoc adaptation over time, uh, creating this common vernacular that creates a place, really simple patterns replicated at scale. And and the root of the creation of these kinds of places are well, were an ecosystem of tradespeople, laborers, lenders, and small-scale developers. So as we've discussed many times on this show, in today's world, the real estate development field has become incredibly centralized and focused on doing large-scale development projects, whether that be doing you know, the urban entertainment districts or convention districts or suburban shopping centers and office parks or subdivisions. We've become very accustomed to the idea that development means big and built all at once and to a finished state. But you point out some really fascinating case studies and examples of where development is being done differently. It's being done in a more incremental fashion that is actually reflective of a traditional approach to development. You've pointed out examples in places like South Bend, Indiana and Atlanta, Georgia. So I want to start by maybe talking about what you think may be driving this return to incremental development in certain places, whereas in many places, you know, real estate development takes kind of this big capital, big player approach. Why do you think incremental development is becoming more normal in certain places? I'm not actually convinced that it is. I want it to. Um, I don't think we're there yet. Um, And that's really the question I set out to answer is, why not? Or what would it take? So the impetus for this whole kind of sprawling five-part series was having these conversations with people through social media and through through my work about this sort of widespread perception that particularly among planners and among city officials that incremental development is just an irrelevant sideshow. That if you're trying to deal with the housing crisis, that if you're trying to deal with adaptation to climate change, getting people out of cars, whatever your issue is, 
well, you can't pay attention to incremental development. It's producing tiny amounts of, of new construction. It's producing a tiny share of the housing stock. What we need to do is incentivize big developers to do the things we want at a huge scale. And I found that mindset to be really, really pervasive. Like, why are you wasting your time even talking about things like missing middle housing? Look, they legalized it in Minneapolis and they built three triplexes. Whoop-de-doo. Um, yeah. And I wanted to push yeah. back against that because I look at the places that I really love and I look at cities. You know, I in the, in the first article in the series, the where did all the small developers go, um, I kind of lay out, well, what was the historical norm in U.S. cities? And you look at places like Chicago, like Boston, like Philadelphia, and these really beloved neighborhoods that were built by small-scale developers copying a template over and over again, and a lot of them not really part of a professional real estate industry. And they were able to do this at scale, and they were able to produce places that are compact and that are human scale and lovable. You've got the the brownstones of Brooklyn. You've got the triple-deckers of New England. Uh, the Victorians of San Francisco. And I look at these places that I love and I say, well, like, how do we get more of that? Everybody loves that. These places are off the hook expensive because everybody loves them so much. How do we get back the economic environment that created them so we can have more of this stuff? And like, what would it take? Like, I look at my home city of Minneapolis and let's say 30,000 people a year, that's the population growth rate in that metro area. And what if I don't want them to go to subdivisions in the suburbs built by Lenar? What if I want them to go to these existing neighborhoods, these old streetcar neighborhoods in missing middle housing, these walkable places with neighborhood serving businesses? And I want to get enough construction of that sort to meet that demand. What are all the reasons that it isn't happening? What are all the reasons that people insist that it can't happen? And what would have to happen to overcome them? So I set out to investigate that. And my planner brain wanted the answer to be, here's the list of five policy interventions we can implement that are going <laughs> to unleash this swarm of small-scale developers. Um, that's sort of the catchphrase, which I got from Kevin Klinkenberg <laughs> in Kansas City, unleash the swarm. Yes. Um, and of course, it doesn't work the way my planner brain wants it to work. And the actual work isn't so much top-down policy. It's bottom-up ecosystem building. It is building a community of people who want to do this stuff and know how to do this stuff. It can help each other solve the problems. And that community has to include city planners and city officials. It has to include people in the banking and you know the lending industry. It has to include people in the skilled trades. It's really about building an ecosystem. That is at the heart of your piece, really, in this series, because I think it's important to point out that what we're proposing when thinking about an incremental approach is a decentralized approach where, you know, it's not implemented by one big government policy or one big developer that comes in and hands us the solution, so to speak. It's about building capacity in a bottom-up kind of way and also taking ownership in what gets built and how it gets built. And, and not just ownership mentally, but ownership in a, in a real tangible kind of way, in a financial kind of way as well. I think it's, I think it's worth pointing out that so many of kind of the large-scale development project approaches are not for people at the local level to actually have ownership in their communities. And to me, that is a very, very important aspect of 
why incremental development is so important. We talk about, you know, the loss of the middle class and things of that nature. And I think it's so important that as we're thinking about how communities are being built, that we're building them with opportunity for ownership in mind. I want to get to that point around, you know, incrementalism and how that comes off as meaning slow, because I've heard that critique. It's not necessarily a wrong critique, especially when when there aren't people at scale doing this kind of work. You know, when there's only one or two people who are building duplexes or missing middle housing in your city, it kind of feels like, why are we wasting our time? And I think there's a lot of reasons why this isn't a waste of time. And and we've kind of named a few of them. How do you get to the point of building up a swarm? I mean, of course, there's this you know need to build capacity. There needs to be people who are able to do this kind of work. I, I see people like I mentioned Monty Anderson in Dallas, Texas. There's people um, around the country that are really... In, in kind of an activist kind of way, trying to build that capacity. But are there ways to scale up the normalization of small-scale development, of incremental development? To me, it seems like there needs to be a shift in how we train people for the future, for you know the future job of being part of this incremental development ecosystem. And that that maybe doesn't mean that you go to a prestigious university for finance so that you could work for a giant real estate development firm, but instead learn a trade or two and learn how to run the numbers for a prospective project and you know learn how to do things that are more on the ground to do these small projects. Because the, the reality is in our existing in our existing built environment, there are lifetimes of work that can be done in the incremental development, in the small-scale development space. And this is a space that large-scale developers, it's, you know, it's not what they eat. You know, <laughs> people, you feed people what they eat and it's not what they eat, right? They're, they're not going to go rehab that little tiny house or that abandoned corner store it's not what they do. And if nobody is able to have the capacity to do it at the more local level, the more entrepreneurial level, then it won't get done. And so that takes us kind of at the local level to say, it it takes people and an ecosystem to say, we're going to put our energy towards this and we're going to pursue a profitable way to make this sustainable as well. You touched on a lot of points there. And I think that they're all connected. And I think understanding how they're all connected is is kind of key here. You know, this idea of ownership in in an intangible sense, not just in a tangible sense, you know, like owner-occupied homes versus rental homes or something like that, but in a sense of who owns the community, who builds the community, who gets to co-create it. There's been a really profound shift throughout kind of the suburban era. And I say suburban era, not just in the suburbs, but in the cities too, toward this idea that I think most of us experience cities as consumers of the built environment developers build it and we we consume what they give us yeah and like developers are widely hated there's a lot of dissatisfaction with (laughs) what it is that they give us and so the question is how can we harness this desire for things to be better where you live 
into showing people you can actually be part of that and you can buy that old corner store and you can rehab it. You can learn how to do this work. You can bring the expertise you have to bear on it. And then you can bring other people along with you and you can show other people how to do it. And then and by the way, you can all feed your families at the same time, you know, and make a life of doing really important and good work. Right. Yeah. And so this, um, you know, one of the best conversations I had in the, in the research for this series was with Grayson Johnson, who worked for a long time with the incremental development Alliance as sort of their curriculum builder and their, um, part of the brain trust there. And she um, has done a ton of thinking about what it is that's going to motivate people to do this work. Um, And I I concluded the series with a piece whose title was a phrase of hers. It was love, money, or desperation. Those are the three reasons that you would become a small-scale developer. Because you love a place, you care about it, you have a vision for it. Out of some sense of enterprise, you see a profit-making opportunity. Or because you're desperate, because you have a need you you need to fill. And very often it's the desperation people that are going to lead the way towards scaling this up. You look at like South Bend, Indiana, where there is a a growing ecosystem of small scale developers doing the work. They're renovating old buildings. They're putting up new stuff, but they're doing it in these kind of forgotten neighborhoods that have been redlined, that have been disinvested in, that have seen a lot of vacancy and abandonment. Um, And the big developers won't touch because they don't see the sort of industrial scale profit-making opportunities there. And that actually becomes an opportunity for the people who live in these neighborhoods to get their hands in and revitalize them. And so what's happening in South Bend that's really remarkable is not just that there are a bunch of small-scale developers breathing new life into you know, a, a couple really kind of historically impoverished neighborhoods, but particularly the near Northwest neighborhood of that city, but it's that the people who are doing it are a cross-section of the people who live in South Bend. They are a lot of women, a lot of people of color, a lot of people who traditionally kind of don't have access to capital and who have been able to get into this because there's a whole network of people now to support them. And that started with a few really enterprising people who just sort of bleed love of South Bend and really wanted to do this and really wanted to be inclusive about it. I talked with Mike Keen, who's a small developer who was a former college professor in South Bend. And he said, we made sure we reached out to every organization we could find in these neighborhoods, had them co-sponsor our events when we brought in the Incremental Development Alliance, when we brought in Monty Anderson. We wanted these these organizations that serve the neighborhoods and that serve people of color in the neighborhoods to be there, to co-sponsor it, to send it to their lists. We wanted to get a cross-section of people and then we wanted to not put up any barriers to entry. You shouldn't have to be at the right party on the 20th floor of some law office yeah, <laughs> to know the right banker, to know the right contractor, to be able to get things done in the city, to know the planning director, to be able to say, hey, I'm really running into problems with this aspect of the code, and maybe you guys want to look at this. So they got all those people into the same room, and they've done it over and over again in South Bend. And the city staff are attuned to the needs of small developers and looking for how they can solve problems for small developers. They got people in the lending community and these people are in the room with, you know, people of color from these redlined neighborhoods who, you know, one of them owns a shipping business, one of them owns um, a tax preparation business. But these are people who, who were saying, look, I would love to be part of the revitalization of this place by rehabbing some buildings. I got space for my business. I got space for the businesses of people I know. I got some rental apartments. 
for people who need good quality housing. I can offer it at an affordable rate. I can do it because this is a neighborhood that the big developers and large-scale investment capital are that's kind of under their radar. And there are so, so many places like that. Like you said, there's a lifetime's worth of work. If we can build the ecosystems of people who want to gain a little bit of knowledge and want to connect with people who have the knowledge they need and want to want to jump in. Yeah. And, and particularly in areas that have been redlined in the past, like to me, this discussion around a lifetime of of work and a lifetime of wealth building opportunity is so important. And it can't be understated the importance of making sure that people who are interested in being a part of the incremental development space in these neighborhoods have a system and a group of people in place that support them so that capacity can be built. Because if the big developers, you know, eventually catch on and kind of steamroll through these neighborhoods, that the opportunity to build wealth will never come back. You know, <laughs> that won't come back. And maybe it will, you know, opportunities come up in, in many different ways. But this particular opportunity to be part of the reinvestment in your own neighborhood is an incredibly important one. And it's something that I think is is critically important to think about when talking about incremental development and wealth building. I want to get to this point of, you know, incremental development being what what we had talked about earlier as a parallel system. And that's, that's borrowing a term um, from John Anderson. That's a really accurate way of putting it because it's, it's not like incremental development is is you know the alternative or or something that we do when the big developers fail you know or or we shouldn't do big development and we should only do incremental development but but it is kind of this parallel system that can work in places where the the big players have decided are not really worth their their time and money and investment maybe you can expand a little bit on on that line of thinking because i think it's an important one, but it's not one that I've thought through through completely. The notion that incremental developers are going to compete on the same turf with large, well-capitalized development firms that you know they have backing from Wall Street, they have a whole lot of collateral they can put towards securing a construction loan on really favorable terms. It's difficult. And I've had multiple small-scale developers tell me, we're trying to seize the opportunities in this neighborhood where we're working well, we can, because once once the big guys turn their attention to it, you know, it's like the eye of Sauron pivoting to, <laughs> you know, now they can, they can outbid us for any piece of land they want. And there are places where small developers kind of are going to put themselves out of business by being too successful. And there are places where they probably can't operate, where the cost of land is too high for it to be profitable to, to buy a lot and then do a small scale project on it. And that's, that's uncomfortable to me because like, you know, I want, I want this decentralization of how many hands are building our cities, but I also want it in places like, you know, the San Francisco's of the world. And I think that there, there are ways that we get there, but they're not, they're a little bit out of the hands of the people who are doing small development now. But I think where small development thrives is as a parallel system, as something that works in the places where big development isn't getting the job done. And that doesn't need to be whole cities or whole neighborhoods where big development isn't getting the job done. You know, I talked to um, Eric Kronberg in, in Atlanta 
who's a developer and an urbanist extraordinaire and a planner there. And he, he made the point that Atlanta has huge needs for new housing. And if you look at, you could max out that city's capacity to build mid-rise, you know, five over one apartment buildings and to build new high-rise towers. And right now that's where almost all of the new housing in the city of Atlanta proper is coming from. 86% in the last few years has been mid-rise and high-rise multifamily structures, but there are only so many cranes and there are only so many contractors that can handle work at that scale and that level of complexity. And you could max out their capacity and you could max out the number of buildable sites for that type of stuff. And you don't even come halfway to meeting the need for housing in Atlanta, in a city that's growing and booming like that. And so the rest of it has to come, if it's going to come at all, it has to come from people doing infill projects on small lots, doing them at a house scale, and people who are sort of outside of that big Wall Street back development ecosystem. It's got to come from from lifting up the little guys. We're not going to outcompete them at their game. We're going to do what they won't. And we're going to do it when and where they fail. That's the idea. Well, and it gets to that point of how do you help people kind of contribute to something like housing supply in a small scale kind of way who may not be, you know, professional developers at all. You know, I, you mentioned Atlanta and, you know, you you see a lot of built by right ADU plans, things of that nature where somebody who owns a house can can buy an ADU and and the floor plan is already drawn up and they can be consulted on how the finances work for that. I feel like that is kind of a critical component and it's something that somebody could actually make a business out of if, if it's allowed by right. So it does kind of get to that point of how cities can help to champion small-scale development. I am of the belief that many cities do want to help but they may not know exactly where the pain points are. They may not be completely aware of, of every little thing that needs to be done to, to help support that. And at the same time, I, I do feel like, you know, we, we talked about zoning last week and how it's kind of a red herring in some ways that, you know, it's not like you can just fix the zoning code and then all of a sudden you're going to have this amazing collaborative ecosystem of small scale developers. There's lots of things that need to happen in order for this to be a viable approach and an approach that that scales well and works well. But I do think that it's important that cities have this ecosystem and that they are supporting this ecosystem growing in their city because it provides them an, an alternative to, you know, kind of the corporate development mindset that often treats cities kind of badly. Not always, but you you hear of cities time and time again that kind of have developers that that say you need to bend the rules or, or, you know, you would be lucky to have me here. And a lot of cities kind of bend the knee and have this mindset of needing to keep progress going and keep investment going. And so they're willing to compromise on, you know, policies maybe that were established. I think it's important to recognize that having another approach available to cities that they can count on decentralized investment happening in addition to the bigger players 
basically helps them to have a reason to stand their ground when it comes to certain policies and to not necessarily just, you know, flex to to any big player that comes to them with something that really may not be good for the long term of the city. I love your use of bend the knee here, not just because I um, enjoyed Game of Thrones <laughs> back when that was on, but I, I think it's absolutely true. And I see it where I live. You know, I'm in a rapidly growing city where a handful of big developers have really outsized political influence. And it just breeds a tremendous amount of cynicism from absolutely everyone in the process or watching the process, because there will be rules put in place that have a specific intention behind them. And then a developer will come and say, well, that's not, that's not going to work for me. It's not going to be viable in the market. My customers want blah, blah, blah. And they, they will roll over every time. You know, you told us that this, subdivision should embrace new urbanist principles and it should have a village center that that's walkable but we think we should have a big box grocery store on the outskirts of the the subdivision next to a strode because that's what the market wants and the elected officials say well you're telling us and you're the only one building anything out here you know who are we to say you're like it, it's this awful dynamic so i i agree that like there are there are so many cities where the sort of established development players kind of either have the have the city over a barrel where they think they do. And everybody else watches this process and gets disgusted by the whole thing and says, well, development is corrupt and nobody cares what, what the citizens want and blah, blah, blah. And it, it's this really vicious cycle of negativity, but then often in response, counterproductive rulemaking that ends up hamstringing the little guy more than it does the big guy in an effort to sort of rein in developers. So I think, yeah, I think the answer is to really address this question of scale. Who gets to build your city? And I think you're absolutely right about pain points. That if you're if you're a planner, if you're an elected official, if you are on the municipal government side of things, get in the room with small-scale developers and ask them where the pain points are. And not all of them are going to be zoning. Some of them are. Every single person I talked to mentioned parking minimums. Like that is a pain yes. point. Yes. That is definitely a pain point. Some of them are zoning. Some of them are procedural. Some of them are how long are the delays that you have to deal with in getting development approval. Some of them have to do with the building code, which may or may not be within your your control in certain respects. Some of them have to do with financing. But like in South Bend, one of the things that the city does is it helps connect people to financing, like just gets them a meeting with a lender and a lender who's open to the idea of small-scale infill development and willing to hear out their proposal. You know, the city can be a really powerful convener in that respect, but there are so many reasons for cities to want to have an ecosystem of small-scale developers who can, who can renovate, who can retrofit, who can build in places that have been neglected that could really use it and get in the room with those people. And, and the kinds of developers that neighborhoods end up having relationships with. I feel like that is also a really important point. I mean, you know, a neighborhood can have a few developers that that they all trust and they have an ongoing relationship and rapport with. And that's another great aspect of having incremental development in your city that that people actually have like personal relationships with the people who are who are building and and the people who are building are they know the market in a way that market studies can't can't really describe and, and, and can't really help people understand. 
you know where the opportunities are. If you live in a neighborhood, if you're in it every day, you know where the opportunities are that wouldn't that wouldn't get a bank's attention because on paper, you know, it maybe it doesn't appraise, maybe it's the market is soft, but in practice, you know that people are telling you, we wish there was X here. Absolutely. So much of this is driven by personal relationships and it's driven by commitment to a place on the ground. And if this is going to grow, it's going to blossom neighborhood by neighborhood. It's not going to be citywide. It's not going to be something that you can create from the top down, but it's going to be, you know, if you get 10 small developers working in one neighborhood and they're all doing multiple projects and they're all looking for opportunities, that has a transformative effect on that neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we'll leave it there. But before we end, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we've been up to lately, anything we've been watching or reading, listening to. So Daniel, what have you been up to these days? A lot of assembling baby furniture and decorations and stuff <laughs> because my um, second child is due in November. What? Um, no any week way. Now. Yeah. Congratulations. Again, I did not know that. I, I don't. <laughs> my, um, yeah, my daughter is, is not even two yet and we're going to have another one and it's going to be, um, you <laughs> might not hear much from me for a whole while. <laughs> Things are going to be yeah. a little busy here, but Sounds we like have it. turned two thirds of our home office into the cutest little nursery. It's space themed. It's got a little little moon lamp, and I'm I'm excited about it because I'm looking at it right now. Because literally, <laughs> the option for us was to keep one third of the room as a home office and then put the crib in the in the rest of it. So, um, so does that mean next time we do a show, um, you'll have a screaming baby in the background? <laughs> I mean, that's not the most professional way to go about it, but maybe, you know, maybe it's approachable. Like I like to have a rapport with my listeners. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I can, <laughs> can try and find somebody else to watch the screaming baby for half an hour, but we'll see. Um, oh, well, that's... congratulations. That is so exciting. <laughs> oh, thank you. What, what have you been up to lately, Abby? Um, so I, I've had a really, really, really crazy week this week, but I did just get to finish the show I've been watching. I don't know if you know this, but for October, I always like get really into Halloween and really like to watch scary shows and movies. And I didn't really do a lot of research on what I would watch this year. So I actually went and rewatched a show that I had watched a couple of years ago called The Haunting of Hill House. And I just finished it last night. Have you ever heard of it? They, they, the director who made it has done a few shows now. He did The Haunting of Bly Manor. And I think he just put out a new one that I have not seen yet. But The Haunting of Hill House has kind of become a classic to me. It's, you know, has kind of a typical setup of a family moving into a big, beautiful house in the middle of nowhere and turns out to be haunted. (laughs) But it has a very, very unique and compelling storyline and amazing actors. Um, The cast is like absolutely amazing. And it's just like, I don't know how you would define this kind of horror, but it's like really beautiful and sad and terrifying and it's I don't I don't really know a lot about horror technically but it's something about this particular horror that I think is like amazing and I think I could rewatch this show every year actually that's how much <laughs> I love it 
I'll have to check it out. I'm not familiar with it. I'm sure my wife really? is. She's a sucker for all things horror. So oh, really? <laughs> maybe, we'll, maybe we'll watch it this weekend. Are you not a big scary movie person? I'm just not a big movie person. I like movies, but usually somebody else has to be the impetus. Be like, okay, let's sit down and watch this. Like, yeah, it's yeah. really the thing I'm going to suggest if I've got a couple hours of free time. Yeah, um, yeah. So. I was I was curious because my husband doesn't really like Halloween or like scary things. He will watch them, but it's like he's not really like he's not moved by by scary shows in the way that I am. You know, I get. I get like really I like to be scared and then I'm I like stay scared for the, like a month after I watch something like this. And you so do this voluntarily. I do it voluntarily and I okay. don't know exactly why but I really love watching horror shows and this particular director is just very very good and I've liked everything so far that he has done. So I'll be watching the newer show. I can't remember what it's called but I'll be I'll probably watch that and extend my Halloween season into November, at least until the holidays. <laughs> Might as well. Why not? Might as well. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining me today, Daniel. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel.